so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast of the Research Institute of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as a senior fellow in Christian ethics, as well as overseeing the Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Spencer to talk about his new book entitled Hope for God's Creation, Stewardship in an Age of Futility from B&H Academic. Today, we discuss the nature of ethics, creation care, and the distinctives of a uniquely Christian approach to the environment. Andrew Spencer earned his PhD from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and currently serves as an associate editor for books at the Gospel Coalition. He's the author of Doctrine in the Shades of Green, Theological Perspectives for Environmental Ethics, editor of The Christian Mind of C.S. Lewis, and a contributor to Baptist political theology. He earned a Ph.D. in theological studies with an emphasis in Christian ethics from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, as well as his Master of Divinity degree. He holds a Bachelor of Science in English from the United States Naval Academy. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Spent, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. I'm really excited about this conversation, one, because this is an area of Christian ethics that I'm not actually very familiar with. This is not something I've spent a ton of time in personally, but it's something that I'm really intrigued by. And you've been leading out on this in a number of ways for a number of years now, writing a couple different books, your latest here, Hope for God's Creation, Stewardship in an Age of Futility. I've been really grateful for your friendship and your scholarship over the last few years. And so it's been really, it's exciting to host you here on the podcast and talk about these ideas. Before we dive into the work, though, and some of the big ideas that you discuss here, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and your story. What kind of drew you into academia to pursue a PhD, to think about Christian ethics? And then how did that connect with this idea of the environment and creation care? Yeah, so I went to the United States Naval Academy and I, I got a degree, an undergraduate degree in English. And then one day I got on the wrong bus. Not really, but I, I made a choice to get on the bus to go to naval reactors and interview and passed the interviews and ended up in the submarine force working in nuclear power. When I got out of the Navy, I was headed off to seminary to work on my MDiv with the idea that I was going to be a pastor at a local church. And when I got to Wake Forest, my choices for employment at the time were to be an instructor at a commercial nuclear power plant or to work kind of part-time at the home improvement store. 
And one of those supported my family and one of those didn't. And so I ended up creating a career after having done it in the Navy in commercial nuclear power. That kind of spawned the interest, continued digging while I'm doing an MDiv and then beginning a PhD in ethics in these kind of technological questions. And then you look at the field and, you know, this is if there are any PhD students listening, right, look for where the questions are that nobody's talking about. And there weren't a lot of people that were from kind of that conservative, evangelical, orthodox emphasis having that conversation at the time that I started. And so that piqued my interest, having a background in electricity generation and then understanding how that plays in with some of the grid questions that tie into all the, the you know, the carbon questions and, and global warming and all those things, you know, that, that was a, a helpful background that spurred me on to work in that area. Yeah, that's one of the things that I really appreciate about kind of the way you approach even this at times very divisive topic in our culture. The way you approach in this book is obviously even in the title, it's Hope for God's Creation, Stewardship in an Age of Futility. I think often conversations about environmentalism, the green movement, even ideas of creation care, and all this language is loaded in many ways, a lot of baggage that comes along with those terms. But it can be a very divisive topic, especially in conservative evangelical orthodox circles, and even throughout all of our society, which I find kind of interesting about debates on what to do, or is there actually even a problem? But I wanted to see, as you kind of start off, as we kind of dig into some of these ideas, can you talk to us a little bit about this approach that's kind of framed as hope rather than the sense of futility that we often see in the conversations surrounding environmental ethics? So when, you know, Paul gives us Romans 8 and the narrative of Romans 8 anticipates the renewal of all creation, creation's groaning in anticipation of God, both our glorification as humans but ultimately creation being set free from the futility that it's been subjected to. And we see that subjection back in Genesis 3. So rather than viewing creation primarily as, you know, ending in destruction with that being the end point, and we're just waiting for a new one to be formed, we see what Paul's saying is, hey, this is going to be made new. It's going to be renewed. And how that takes place, there's an eschatological question with that that I iron out in the book, at least my position on it. But that frames what we, how we begin the process. And if we begin the, begin the process by saying creation has been subjected to futility, and one of the implications of the gospel, it's not the gospel itself, but it's an implication, is that we should be renewing and pushing to show what Francis Schaeffer calls substantial healing. That points us to a sense of hope. And Schaefer's idea of substantial healing is, is really central to that concept of hope because he thought and he argued throughout his work, you see it especially in true spirituality, but you also see it in pollution and the death of man. He argued that in this life, in our relationships with each other, in our relationships with ourselves, in our relationship with the created order, in our relationship with God, we can see real improvement that isn't final perfection. And that is substantial healing. And so, in all of those spheres, whether it's in poverty alleviation or in concern for the environment, we push forward with the hope that we can improve things, even though that we know ultimately in the end, God is going to have to step in and purge all the sin out of all creation and make things new. 
And so that's that's the idea of hope that's built into the the thesis of the book. Yeah, it's a good reminder. I think sometimes I was just telling my students this the last week when we talk about the role of sin and brokenness and even total depravity as I come from kind of more reformed take in, within the Baptist tradition is thinking about the ubiquity and the totality of sin, how it affects everything, us as individuals, as people, as human beings, but also even creation itself. And even kind of as you were talking about that, you kind of see that idea is if we really believe in the ubiquity and the totality of sin and affecting everything, that affects creation as well. And there is that kind of groaning and longing that this is God's world, that he's created it. And even as you talk about here, there's this concept of stewardship and what that means as part of being human, being God's image bearers. And I want to unpack that here in a little bit as well. But the thing that I, I really enjoy about this book, and I'm not just gushing over it because you do have a beautiful cover to this book and it's very helpful, but the way you approach it's very helpful because even very early on, you do something that I don't see in a lot of ethics books. They just kind of assume the basics of a Christian ethic and move on to kind of the symptoms, evaluating, describing, and then going through kind of what we can do about it. But rather than assuming a particular understanding of Christian ethics, you immediately start to help readers see the role that our conduct, our character, and our goals play in kind of the overall nature of the Christian life. And then in particular, how a more theocentric approach to environmental ethics helps us to avoid some of the common pitfalls that happens in a more kind of human-centric or even environment-centric approach to a lot of the questions we're asking today. I want to see if you could unpack that a little bit about the unique nature of the Christian ethic and how does that Christian approach make approaching these kind of big questions about the environment and our stewardship, how, what's unique about that amongst other perspectives? So the kind of character and goals questions that I highlight, I, I got from David Jones, who did the uh, intro to biblical ethics in the, the B&H series, but it actually comes before that from the Heidelberg Catechism. And there's a question about what makes good work. And the answer is that good works are those things that take into account the law, right? Is this consistent with God's law? And so that's that's the conduct in it, right? Because there are things that are inside and outside of those basic parameters. But then there are things that we do that could be good things, but if we do them and we're not the right sort of person, right, that character, either, you know, you could preach a sermon and it's sin because you did it for your own glory to make your uh, make a name for yourself. And so that that's the wrong character in it. And then the goal behind it, right, is also very significant because you're shooting for not for your own own good, not for uh, that self-promotion, but rather that you're, you're shooting to, to give God the glory. So really character also comes into not just that, are you the sort of person repeatedly that's in the position in order to do that? And we see this, you know, could be played out with a question of a sermon. It could be in sexual ethics, right? Because sex in itself, intercourse, between a man and woman isn't inherently sinful if you are the husband and the wife, and if you're participating in the activity with the intent to glorify God. And so all three of those pieces have to be in place in order for it to uh, be a good act. And so when you take that question, then you can apply it to environmental ethics. And that really diffuses a lot of things because you, you step back from those questions about, you know, am I sinning if I leave my lights on 
when I leave a room, right? And it asks different questions that help you frame the experience and the action and the, and the circumstance so that you're saying, am I the sort of person that isn't tending well to the amount of energy that I consume? And I'm, am I using more resources than I really need to? Or am I using resources in a way that is intended just for my good and not to point to the goodness of God? And I part that, especially as you kind of mentioned the end of that in terms of our goal and who we're seeking to honor and glorify, that kind of theocentric approach really upends a lot of kind of the cultural narratives and goals that we see within kind of non-Christian approaches to very similar topics. I know you've written pretty extensively on the topic in general. You have a much larger volume called Doctrine in the Shades of Green, where you survey a number of other Christian approaches and even non-Christian approaches to the topic. I wanted to see if you could give us just kind of a brief taste of even within the Christian tradition, some different kind of approaches that's kind of not maybe completely at odds, but different in how you approach, especially in this volume. How do you, how do other Christians, how have they approached this over history and over time? So in that Doctrine and Shades of Green, I highlight four different perspectives. There could be other ones, but those are the four at kind of discrete points along a kind of a political spectrum or a, a theological spectrum, all the way from fundamentalism to eco-theology. And eco-theology is a, a branch of liberation theology. So my whole dissertation, that is a version of my dissertation, is unpacking concept that I borrowed from Richard Lintz in his Fabric of Theology, and that's that every ethical question can be boiled down to a theological perspective, and that there are key questions or key theological doctrines that are at the heart of that particular ethical field. So, for creation care or environmental ethics, the heart of it is, you know, what is your source of authority? The second part is, what is the value of the created order? The third one is, what is the role of humanity within the created order? What's the purpose of, of humanity within the created order? And then the fourth thing is, what is the end telos, right? The eschatological question, where is creation going at the end? And the way that people answer those four questions, and they apply outside of Christianity too, that shapes the answers they give to some of these environmental questions. So the book shows that, obviously, I, I kind of stand in the evangelical strain, right? And so I argue that we have the theological means to have a robust environmental ethic while fully and full-throatedly supporting all the orthodox documents. But also, I argue that fundamentalists as well have the same claim because we're so theologically aligned in that. But then what becomes problematic is where when you begin to answer those questions, when you get to the liberal theology, which is one of my categories as well, they begin to ask questions from the opposite end where we, we assume the authority of Scripture. And so we say, what does Scripture say about the way that we're supposed to treat the created order? They often begin with an assumption that the created order ought to be treated in a certain way, and how can Scripture potentially support that? And the eco-theologians then go and they say, perhaps Scripture doesn't support that, and so we need to revise or reread Scripture in order to support that. And so, but the value in looking at the perspectives in that way 
and thinking about the questions in that way and trying to figure out what are the core questions on this issue, which is a different set than for other issues. But the value in that is that it shows the points of agreement and disagreement, because then you can begin to actually figure out what's the reason why we don't agree on this approach to environmentalism or abortion or whatever. And then you can you can hone in on that and stay away from just ad hominem attacks or attacking the, the policy end. Because before you get to policy, there's a philosophy or a theology that undergirds that. And so my approach, the theological perspective, is intended to help us understand so that then we can engage better and actually have a better conversation about the things that matter before we argue about, you know, tax policy and carbon emissions and those things. Yeah, I I really like the way you kind of approach that because it reminds us that any idea that we see in the public square, any of these big concepts, these big arguments that are being made, even ideological commitments, there is a deep philosophy that's undergirding that. There's a deep kind of answer to many of these big questions of who is God? What does it mean to be human? What's the nature of justice? What is good? What is beauty even? And how those kind of philosophical questions undergird really any approach to any of the big issues we talk about today, notwithstanding even environmental ethics and how we think about the nature of creation, that there are these kind of ideological commitments that flow into that. One of the things that I have been thinking on and kind of writing on recently, and this is something that's not original to me, many have done this as well, but seeing the relationship between the great commandment and the great commission, especially in the centrality of ethics, that we are to love God and to love our neighbors ourselves as we go therefore and make disciples. And I think a lot of times, especially within our circles, we are great commission Baptists. We are great commission people. We are to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that is our first and foremost commitment is we seek to love God and love our neighbor. It's going, therefore, and making disciples and sharing that gospel message. You rightfully kind of point out that one of the many implications of that great commandment and that great commission is this idea of stewardship. It's understanding who God is, how he's created us in his image, and how that kind of shapes our approach even to creation care. Because we're not focusing on the environment to the neglect of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, but part of taking the gospel and teaching people to follow that great commandment, to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, means taking into account who we are, how he's created us in that part of that stewardship. So can you help us to understand a little bit of that? Because I think at first, when you first hear that, you're kind of like, I don't know, that seems like a really kind of weird connection between, you know, the great commandment and great commission and this idea of creation, care and environmental ethics. But I also want to show like there is a rich connection there, even though this is one of the many implications that doesn't take the, the focus off of the gospel proclamation going to the ends of the earth. Can you help us to understand that a little bit? Yeah, because... That is a big emphasis within my book, because one of my big concerns is whatever issue it is, whatever social issue it is, whether it's ending abortion or, you know, the environmental ethics or helping alleviate poverty, those things can take the place of gospel proclamation. They can become the center of a a Christianity that no longer is robustly orthodox and and united around the truths of scripture. 
And so we have to push back against that because at the, at the end of the day, right, Christ was absolutely clear that we have a great commandment. We, we need to get the gospel to the nations and we need to disciple people as we go and, and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, right? That's nearly as parting words to us. And so we don't want to eclipse that emphasis as we do something else that could be good, but it's secondary. Now, there are things that we should think about as Christians as we we think about the, the question of environmental ethics that actually closely pertain to the Great Commission. Because one of the ways that people know that we're Christians, they know what the gospel looks like, is that the gospel is made comprehensible and plausible within the, the culture that you live in. And one of the ways that we can help show the nature of the truth of Christianity, right, is we have a creator God who made everything, and therefore it has inherent value. It's not value in and of itself, but it's value because the creator made it in his, in, to some degree, like a lesser degree than humans, but to some degree, it reflects his image. It's his fingerprints all over it. And so the way that we treat that creation as we anticipate that substantial healing points toward our hope eschatologically in the renewal of all things, so that when we're having conversations, when, when we're making choices about our consumer patterns, at that broadest level, in addition to clear gospel proclamation, we're showing the comprehensiveness of the gospel and that it works within the context we live and work and love and go to church in. That's the primary, because it, it shows that the gospel works. The second piece is that environmental ethics is at really kind of a primary level about resource management. And so in the West, we use something like 70 times the amount of energy that our, you know, our forefathers did it, around, around the American Revolution, right? We've just ballooned the amount of energy that we use. We don't think about that, but we invest a lot of our income into resources that if we're able to actually scale back on some of those and be more frugal and thoughtful in the way that we use them, whether it's in you know, shortening our commute, uh, living in smaller spaces, or just purchasing less things, we're going to use fewer resources on, on the earth. We can still have nice things. We still should have children, but we can use fewer resources. And then we can actually take some of those resources that we're not purchasing and maintaining with our, our finances and divert them directly to getting the gospel to the nations by sending people to places where the gospel has not gone or, or you know, needs to go more. And so there's a big picture reason why this matters. And then there's the kind of more boots on the ground, nitty gritty reason, which is that frugality. I think that's part of this. Yeah, kind of continuing on this theme of our authority. Obviously, we as evangelical Orthodox believers hold to sola scriptura. Scripture is our highest and our sole authority in that sense. Um, but we also, especially, it's interesting in the kind of the study in, of Christian ethics, especially evangelical ethics recently, there's been kind of a resurgence of interest and in, in focus on the role of general revelation, common grace, natural law. Now, all of that, there's so much that could be unpacked even in those three terms. There are some kind of related ideas there, but there's also some distinctive nature to those things as well. I wanted to see if you can help us to understand a little bit of the relationship then of how God has generally revealed certain truths, even about himself and the nature of the world and who we are as human beings in creation itself. 
as part of this kind of call to steward God's creation. I think that that is such a rich connection when you think of like nature and then the idea that we're called to call for nature itself. Nature is speaking to us, revealing certain things about God. We see this Romans 1 and Romans 2, that these are truths that have been undeniable since the very beginning of creation, a law written upon our hearts. At the same time, there's part of that law is also our our stewardship of creation itself. As creation speaks, we also care for creation. I wanted to see if you could kind of unpack that a little bit and help us to understand the role of general revelation or even natural law as we think about this ethic of creation care. So like you said, we always begin with what does Scripture say, right? And Scripture defines it's God's special revelation, right? It's the clearest message that He's given us about who He is, what He's done, what He's planning on doing, and how we should live. But He has also given us general revelation. You know, you have Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glories of the Lord. And like you referenced, like Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where, you know, God's invisible attributes have been, can be witnessed within the created order, such that everyone's without excuse. That points toward, you know, the, the need for a savior, that there's something wrong with this world, but it also points to the way things that are, are designed and the goodness of the created order. So, God gave us order in creation in order to help show us what he is like. And therefore, when we treat creation in a way that honors the design of the designer, we should see a response that is positive. When we look at, you know, kind of naturally, consequences flow from actions that are negative toward the uh, the creative, created order. And so, you know, we can create situations of avalanches for ourselves. There are natural consequences. We, we saw this with acid rain. We polluted with sulfur dioxide, and it changed the pH of clouds. So there are areas within the Adirondacks that are thankfully now, after three decades of begin, beginning to mitigate that pollution, they're recovering. But there was a real depletion of natural resources. And part of that is, is God's grace is showing us that if you aren't careful in the way that you deal with this good thing that I've given you, that there are going to be natural consequences. Same thing with, you know, the the death of Lake Erie, so to speak. Right now, we're not back to where we were. I live on the shore or near the shore of Lake Erie. We're beginning to see commercial fisher again, just finally, right in the last decade or so. We're seeing the bald eagle come back from some of the near the endangered levels, such that we see them pretty much every week when we go for a walk. All those things are ways that, you know, kind of God through general revelation is causing the signal that says, you're not treating this thing appropriately. These good things are going away. They're being damaged. You need to change what you're doing. And so we can look at those things. And this is where science is can be helpful in studying this and saying, this is impacting this, and therefore we maybe need to do less of that, or maybe we need to do more of this other thing in order to help and can provide information. But at the end of the day, all of that information has to come back and you can't do anything that's contrary to scripture, right? And and that's, that's key. That's where kind of an evangelical environmental ethics is going to fundamentally differ with some other perspectives, because, you know, we can never chase things like a population decline through abortion for sterilization and these sorts of things, uh, because those are unjust and unholy, right? We always have to f- pursue the flourishing of, of 
humanity and of all creation simultaneously. So obviously we've spoken of kind of some of the theological and kind of ethical and philosophical contours of a uniquely Christian approach. As Christians think through kind of engaging even in the public square, there are a plethora of views and ideas and especially policies that get rolled out varying degrees, some that we may kind of agree with in part or some that we have to reject outright, as you just spoke of in terms of kind of lowering the population, different things like that through forced sterilization or abortion. What are some of the dangers that Christians should be aware of as we kind of approach this subject in the public square as evangelicals? Are there certain kind of ruts or kind of ditches that as we think through environmental policy or environmental ethics that you would say we need to kind of avoid these kind of extremes as we seek to cultivate wisdom in navigating a lot of these challenges? One of the biggest problems with the environmental movement as a whole is that it's assumed a particular economic approach and used the environmental issue as a way to drive that forward. And some of this goes back into the 1970s. So so the the wave of environmentalism that we're kind of in right now started in the 60s around the time with, you know, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. But that was also the time where you see Paul Ehrlich's population bomb that came out and it drove this concern. We're using too much. We're dirtying everything like the 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 physical pollution. Like in 67, the Cuyahoga River was on fire because the amount of oil on it. And that made national news that drove these things. So in 1971, you have the first Earth Day because Richard Nixon is the most, well, it was the first real green president. He created the EPA and a bunch of stuff like that. But they, they did the Earth Day celebration. It was a big deal. And it was sponsored both by Democrats and Republicans. But in 1972, the Rockefeller Commission published a report. And it was a, a, a report on American population and prosperity that came out and advocated for sterilization, government supplied contraception, and increase in the legalization of abortion. Then you have on top of that Roe v. Wade, which now you've got a huge schism that comes out between people. I think conservatives rightly generally would conserve the created order and think about making things nice and, and, and preserving those. And this movement on the left, which saw a, a strong desire to see, you know, abortion and some other things that are really negative in there as a solution to environmental issues. So that divided it. And then on top of that, you have a movement towards socialism, especially with activists like Naomi Klein, who came to environmentalism in part as a way to implement her desire to have this you know, broad-scale socialism implemented. So that's a dividing point. And it's also a way that we can be very drawn in, in negative directions in unhealthy ways. Because if we just say environment good, therefore I follow this environmental group, and we don't look at the other things that they're saying along with that, then we can find ourselves agreeing with or supporting things or funding things that are actually pretty negative and unholy. And that's, that's the challenge for Christians. And it's especially a challenge for Christians in the U.S. In other corners of, of the globe, there tends to be a more, less of a division there. 
uh, and there tends to be more conservative emphasis on good environmental ethics, which is tends to be socially more in accord with things that we could advocate for from a biblical perspective. It's interesting, you know, kind of that idea of conservatism, especially in the United States, because even at the core of conservatism is this idea of conserving. And part of something we're called to conserve is also being good stewards of creation itself. And so it should naturally flow from that. But you're right. There are so many pitfalls and there's so many, whether it's hidden agendas or just very plain agendas that are happen within these movements as ideas and things get tied together. And I appreciate that bit of wisdom uh, because that's something I try to encourage my students regularly to think about is, look, as we approach things, it's easy for us to say, okay, we'll just kind of categorize it in this and be able to move on. And we're not going to focus on that. But it really takes a sense of wisdom and virtue to slow down and say, are there things we can affirm here? Are there things we must reject? And how do we kind of start to navigate some of these big ideas? Because nothing happens in a vacuum. Even that little snippet of history there helps us to understand just the challenges that we face today. There's a history. Again, things didn't just happen in a vacuum. And so being aware of that can help us to cultivate some of those senses of wisdom and virtue as we we navigate a lot of those questions. Well, Spence, I know there's so much more, not only in this volume and in your other volume, Doctrine of the Shades of Green, that can be really helpful. And I do recommend these resources to folks, Hope for God's Creation, Stewardship in an Age of Futility, uh, just recently released with BNH Academic earlier this year. I encourage listeners to grab a copy of this helpful volume. As we wrap up our time, one of the things we always try to do on the podcast is to leave listeners with some next steps. Obviously, you are a book guy. You're a books editor there at the Gospel Coalition. I love books as well, obviously, with teaching and research. Um, And that idea of kind of leaving some extra resources. There are some folks who maybe this is the very first time they've even thought about this as a Christian. Others who have dug into these ideas before. But what are some resources outside of your own that you would recommend to listeners, maybe just a couple of things that you'd recommend to listeners if they want to go a little bit deeper in some of these ideas and concepts. So one of my favorite books on the topic is is actually the oldest evangelical entry into the into the conversation. And it's Francis Schaeffer's Pollution and the Death of Man. It came out in 1971. It answered some of the key questions of that day. And even though some of his examples are obviously dated, it still has stood kind of with its ideas, the test of time. And so I would point people that direction. Sandra Richter in Stewards of Eden did a really good job working through especially the Old Testament text uh, and into the new to show the biblical basis for us treating creation well. And then, you know, Doug and Jonathan Moo also did a really good book that's a biblical theology. It's in Zondervan's Biblical Theology series on creation care. Uh, And they work through some of these challenging issues, and they do it, whereas I I approach more from a theological angle, they approach as the text first and then go forward. Uh, And so all of those resources are helpful. Well, we'll make sure to link to all of those here in the show notes for listeners' sake. And I do want to just again recommend uh, your new book with BNH Academic, Hope for God's Creation, Stewardship in an Age of Futility. Spence, I really appreciate your friendship over the last few years um, and also your scholarship. You're doing some really, really great work, and I commend it to listeners. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Great. Thank you for having me. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. 
As a reminder, you can connect with Andrew and learn more about his new book, Hope for God's Creation, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonbacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Research Institute at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. Edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week. Mm-hmm.